there are at least two ways to see the Messiah's presence in the Old Testament. The chief would be the Lord's messenger. Dr. Reed Lessing, co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. The second way we see the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament would be through God's glory. Learn more about the Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Whether you're speaking morally or politically, it is just wrong to say that pro-life states are making a mistake in passing pro-life legislation. And I worry that Trump is giving aid to people who are politically averse to doing the right thing on abortion law. There are people who are absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. And the statement that there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. So that statement violates the law of non-contradiction and can therefore not be true. The woke are not having their own children. My friends on the left have zero to two kids. My friends on the right have two to 12 kids. And so they're not making their own kids. So I think that their hope is to take ours and raise ours and indoctrinate ours. Salvation is forgiveness. Salvation is new life in Christ, not affirmation of our desires. God didn't give the gospel to affirm us. He gave the gospel to save us. This is Brian from Dallas. Texas Dove Hunters love issues, etc. in the field. Adios, Palomas! There is a low point in ancient Israel's history. They had been warned by the prophets. They had been told that judgment was coming, that they would no longer remain in the land under God's blessing, that the glory of the Lord would depart from them. And they don't listen. By and large, they don't listen. And the Davidic kingdom becomes a rebellious kingdom. And God, in the midst of judgment, still speaks a promise of salvation and a Messiah. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Dr. Andrew Steinman joins us for the conclusion of our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. He's co-author of the Issues Etc., Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. An hour from now, we'll have Pastor Will Whedon lead us in a teaching on St. Michael and all angels observed by the Church on September 29th. Dr. Andrew Steinman is Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. Dr. Steinman, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Good to be back. Why are the Old Testament prophets so often called to preach God's message of wrath and pending judgment? Well, because like the rest of us, the people of Israel were sinners, and they kept on straying away from God. And so they had to be shown God's law. And they didn't do what the prophets called them to do, which was especially put aside their pagan gods and worship the true God. So time and time again, They failed to do this. They didn't take the high places away where they engaged in worship that sometimes was of pagan gods. And even if it was the worship of the true God that they thought they were doing, they weren't doing it where God said to do it in the temple in Jerusalem. And so they had to hear the wrath of God to call them to repentance. How do even those prophets that are delivering that wrath and that warning also deliver the promise of a Messiah? 
They do it by pointing the people to something beyond themselves. They, like Jeremiah, he'll point to the days to come when God will fulfill his promises of old. And this is generally what the prophets do to try to encourage the people in their repentance, to see that even though God is expressing his wrath against their sins, they point them to a day to come uh, where God will have something better for them. And so calling them in this way with both the stick of the law, but also the carrot of the gospel to entice them and work through the Holy Spirit to bring faith into their hearts so that they can look beyond their present circumstances. Let's talk about Jeremiah. Why does the prophet Jeremiah focus on the house of David? Well, he does this because of previous promises. God had given David a promise, and David becomes kind of the king by which all the other kings are measured. We see this in the book of Kings. We read about kings who either were like David, or more often we read about kings who were not like David, who didn't do the right thing like David did. And so Jeremiah uses this combination of all the kings being compared to David as the great example of a king in the Old Testament and the fact that David got the promise of the Messiah to come from his line as a reason to focus on David and many of his prophecies. What role does King Josiah play in the Messianic promise? Josiah is an interesting exception to the kings, especially in Jeremiah's day. Most of the kings encouraged idolatry, did not always see that justice was done. But Josiah stands out as an exception. Now, Josiah reigns in the 7th century, the latter half of the 7th century, from about 641 to 609 B.C. And Jeremiah says that he was a king who saw that there was justice and righteousness in the land. And Jeremiah becomes the last, we might say, righteous or good king of the people of Judah. And after him will be his sons who will sit on the throne, and all of them are judged to be less faithful to God. And of course, it's during the time of Jeremiah's sons that Judah begins to fall to the Babylonians. How does Jeremiah then describe the Messiah? Well, often he describes him as a new David. In Jeremiah 30, he says that the people of God eventually will come to the Messiah, and he says they'll serve the Lord their God and David their king. So Jeremiah takes this promise that was given to David and is so closely associated with David as the ideal king to just characterize the Messiah is kind of a, a new David, in fact, an even better David than the original one. And so he talks about the Lord raising up a righteous sprout for David, picking up on a, a theme that was already in uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 4 does this, and a theme that will be used again later by the prophet Zechariah. So by portraying him as the new David, the greater David, he connects him to this great promise that David had 
and shows the people that that promise hasn't gone away. God still has it in mind, and God is still working to bring it about. What is the new covenant proclaimed by the prophet Jeremiah? It's really a renewed covenant. The word new in Hebrew can sometimes mean something that's completely new and novel and never seen before, but oftentimes it's used in a sense to mean renewed, something that is made new, but that already existed. And so he talks about a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31, is where this new covenant is talked about. And it's a very important one. And maybe one that has more influence in the New Testament than virtually any other passage in Jeremiah's writings. So this renewed covenant takes place because God didn't put aside the old covenant. He didn't abandon his covenant with the people of Israel. He's going to renew it and reshape it. He talks about the people of Israel abandoning his covenant, even though God says he was a husband to them. Now, this metaphor to describe God's relationship with ancient Israel is one that we find elsewhere in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah develops it already in chapter two. He talks about the God taking the people of Israel in marriage, but the marriage kind of broke down and God had to judge his bride. And he talks about that later on in chapter 13. And Jeremiah prophesies there's going to be a great separation in this marriage. Some people are going to be taken to Babylon. But in Jeremiah 31, he talks about making a new covenant. And there's an interesting idiom here in Hebrew. Very often when we read in the Bible that God will make a covenant or someone will make a covenant, the word there is actually cut because covenants were made with sacrifices. Sacrifices were cut and the blood flowed. An interesting example of this cutting a covenant is found already in Genesis where God makes his covenant with Abraham. And before he does it, as Abraham cut some animals in half, some sacrificial animals, including some sacrificial birds, and lay the halves out in two rows. And then we're told God appears to Abraham as a torch between these two rows of halved animals, and he makes his covenant with Abraham. And there you get the idea of why it's a covenant, almost like our idiom in our day to cut a deal, but a little bit different origin for it. So he says he's going to cut a new covenant, a renewed covenant with the people of Israel. Now, this passage is very important because of the New Testament. Jesus comes for his holy covenant. In fact, we read in Luke 1 already where it's said that God remembered his holy covenant. He didn't put it aside. He remembered it. And in the Lord's Supper, we have the new covenant. Jesus calls it the new covenant in my blood. Again, he renews this covenant on new terms. And it's specifically a covenant where once again, blood flows, just like cutting a covenant. Well, Jesus' blood flows. And in the Holy Supper, we have Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of sins. And here in Jeremiah, the same thing is predicted. In Jeremiah 31, when we get to verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity 
and remember their sin no more. This is the basis of the new covenant, this great forgiveness that comes in Jesus. And so even the sacraments, especially the Lord's Supper, reminds us of this renewed covenant that God made and involves not just Israel, but involves also the people who are called to be the new Israel of God, even Gentiles. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. We're concluding our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. When we come back, how does Jeremiah signal the restoration of the Davidic kingdom? Issues Etc. Regular guests Dr. Reed Lessing and Dr. Andrew Steinman are the authors of our Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about The Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Study the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens with the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Messianic Message. LCMS Worship invites you to attend the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music July 9th through the 12th in 2024 at Concordia University, Nebraska. The theme is Songs of Deliverance, the Psalms, and the Great Congregation. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and we're now accepting presenter proposals through September. Go to lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. If you're visiting Frankenmuth, Michigan, come to Emanuel Lutheran Church in nearby Frankentrost. A hearty band of German missionaries founded Emanuel Frankentrost in the wilderness near Saginaw. At Emanuel, you can still hear the law and gospel in a beautiful liturgical service, just like those first settlers. For directions and divine service times, visit frankentrost.org. That's F-R-A-N-K-E-N-T-R-O-S-T dot org. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. We're concluding our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Andrew Steinman, Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago, is our guest. Dr. Steinman, we were talking about the prophet Jeremiah. How does he signal the restoration of the Davidic kingdom? Well, he shows it by the second to last king of Judah, a man named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was taken into captivity in Babylon and spent a long time there in prison. But in the year 561 B.C., the Babylonian king, who the Bible calls evil Merodach and is known to history 
elsewhere as Emil Marduk, ordered that Jehoiakim be taken out of prison, and he actually got to eat from the king's royal table. And this little thing that Jeremiah includes, this little vignette of an incident from Jehoiakim's life, signals the hope that God's people have. Jehoiakim, a direct descendant of David, he was childless, according to Jeremiah 22, and yet God is showing him that there's hope. Just as Sarah and Abraham were childless, couldn't have a child, but they had hope, and God gave them a child, even though, as the book of Hebrews says, Abraham was as good as dead, yet he has a child. So here there's hope in that Jehoiakim is freed from prison, and there's kind of a beginning of a glimmer of light here, kind of like a sunrise, as David's house is also going to rise and come back from what looked like its destruction, its death. And so Jesus will bring this to full fulfillment in his resurrection. So Jehoiakim coming out of prison, almost given up as dead, gives a little glimmer of hope for this in the book of Jeremiah. How do we see the presence of the Messiah in Jeremiah? Well, we don't get it as clear as some other prophets, but we have here God at times speaking directly to Jeremiah. We see that Jeremiah sees someone and gets a message from him, and this is God. And of course, this is the presence of Jesus. It's Jesus who reveals the Father, we know from the New Testament. And so when Jeremiah talks about these visions that he has in seeing God, it's he's seeing the presence of Jesus who reveals these things about what he himself will do when he comes in the flesh. What is unique about Ezekiel's prophetic ministry and message? He divides his book roughly into three parts, and each of them center on God's glory in some way. So he has an opening vision where he sees the glory of God. He sees God on this kind of chariot-like conveyance, and he sees God in his glory. Then later on, when he prophesies that God is leaving the temple, he sees the glory of God leaving the temple as a precursor to the coming Babylonian destruction of the temple. And then finally, at the very end of his book, in the last chapters, he sees a glorious new temple and God's glory seated once again in this new temple. So he has like three different parts to his book that reveal the glory of God in various ways to his readers. So talk more about that glory as God's way through Ezekiel to proclaim the coming Messiah. Yeah, well, here we have Ezekiel describing his vision of God. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, when he sees this vision of God on a throne, he says he's looked like a man. Now, the second person of the Trinity is who is the one who reveals himself as God in the flesh. And this is almost a precursor of Jesus coming in the flesh. This man that Ezekiel sees in his inaugural visions 
is the Messiah himself. He describes his brightness. When you read this, you almost think of Jesus' transfiguration. And he gives the glorification of this person that he sees, almost like the glory that Jesus receives at God's right hand, as we read elsewhere in the New Testament. And he actually says that this appearance was like the glory of the Lord. So the glory of the Lord is in this man that Ezekiel sees. And so here we have Ezekiel in the presence of the holy God, and that holy God is himself depicted as a man, Jesus, as he sees him. This will be the glory of the Lord that Ezekiel continues to see in the other parts of his book too. And this, of course, comes to fulfillment in the New Testament. The word become flesh and dwelt among us, John says in the first chapter, and we have seen his glory. So this is picked up by John as he opens his gospel in the New Testament. God's glory we see in Jesus, however, only briefly at the transfiguration, where God's glory is really shown is in his suffering and death, and finally in his resurrection. Jesus talks about this in John as he looks forward to his suffering and death. He tells his disciples, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that doesn't happen by great shining of his glory, but in his suffering and death and in the garden where he's arrested, he prays to the Father to glorify him, which is going to come on his cross. And of course, ultimately, this is seen in Jesus' resurrection. John talks about this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Just as Ezekiel saw a new temple with the glory of God coming in it, now Jesus refers to the temple of his body, the very dwelling place of God in the flesh, and his resurrection where his glory is shown again after he showed his glory in his suffering and death. So tell us more about Ezekiel's theme of this new temple and how it relates to his messianic promise. Uh, Well, the last chapters of Ezekiel, 40 through 48, so we have nine chapters here where he talks about this renewed temple and renewed Jerusalem. And this temple is animated by God and even has a river flowing out of it. And of course, a flowing water is what is often referred to in the Bible, especially the Old Testament and by Jesus in the New Testament as living water. And Jesus talks about living water flowing because of him. And so we see this uh, Ezekiel as a foreshadowing of what Jesus will say. Jesus, of course, brings us into a relationship with him in the sacrament of holy baptism with water. Unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says, John chapter three. And so the Messiah is depicted here in this new temple is bringing this living water that that Jesus talks about. He talks about living water with the Samaritan woman at the well. Very important passages here. And Jesus himself 
was bereft of water when he's on the cross. He thirsted, but nevertheless, even though he's crushed and he seems to have no water at all, so he brings water to people. He reverses all of that, especially through his resurrection. Ezekiel also has a very famous passage about dry bones. He sees a valley of dry bones and Ezekiel prophesies to them and flesh comes on the bones and they are resurrected. And he calls it a vast army. Well, the forerunner of that vast resurrection of Israel is Jesus' resurrection from the cross. So once again, Ezekiel is tying all this resurrection theme to Jesus and Jesus' benefit for his people who someday will be resurrected. What is Ezekiel's theme of the Good Shepherd? Yeah, now this is an interesting one because we're so familiar with it from the New Testament and again from the Gospel of John. But in Ezekiel 34, the prophet talks about the bad shepherds that the people had, the leaders, especially the kings, and how they were bad. But he also prophesies that God is going to do something better than that for his people. And in Ezekiel 34, he prophesies, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Here again, calling the Messiah David, as we talked about with Jeremiah, calling uh, the Messiah David. So Ezekiel picks up on this same thing. David will be the appointed shepherd by God the Father. And of course, this David is not the historic David but is a name for the Messiah who fulfills all the promises to David. By the way, we find the same thing not only in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but Hosea and Amos also will use this figure of David. This shepherd is the servant of God. This picks up on the promise that's given to David, the Messianic promise, where twice in that promise, Uh, my servant is mentioned. So again, my servant David will be their shepherd. Clear messianic connections all the way back to this promise to David. And then Ezekiel calls this new David a prince, probably avoiding the term king because the kings were so evil in Ezekiel's day before he was exiled to Babylon. He saw these uh, evil kings at the end of the kingdom of Judah. And so he probably refers to him in prince to avoid the idea of him being evil like these evil kings. But he sees this prince then, this royal leader to come, and this ruler as the one who will restore God's people and be the shepherd that they are going to be, are going to need, excuse me. And of course, This is said to be the work of the Lord in Ezekiel 34. God will use the first person pronoun I. I will search for my sheep. I will rescue them. I will gather them. I will shepherd them. Some of the ways that he talks about this. And in fact, in the middle of this chapter, there's five verses, verses 11 through 15, where he refers to himself 17 times in the ways that he is going to do this. And this, of course, is the good shepherd that we meet in the Gospel of John, especially in chapter 10, 
Jesus says he's the good shepherd and that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so this is what Ezekiel is doing. And he's really picking up on a theme that's elsewhere in the Bible where God calls himself a shepherd in the Old Testament. And now we see that that shepherd is going to be the Messiah himself when he comes. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. We're concluding our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. He's co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. We'll talk about some other references in Ezekiel to the restored Davidic kingdom next. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul and the Roman Tribune. Paul brought to the council. Paul divides the room, plot to kill Paul, and Paul sent to Felix. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org slash witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem, Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy, joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu.
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. On this Friday, September the 29th, we are concluding our series on finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. Dr. Steinman, we were speaking before the break about the restoration of the Davidic kingdom under Ezekiel's prophecies. What are the references does Ezekiel have to that effect? There's an interesting prophecy about two sticks of wood. And he says that each has a name on him. One is Judah, and the other is Joseph. And this stands for the two kingdoms that divided out of David's kingdom after David's death. Obviously, Judah is the southern kingdom. The reason the northern kingdom is Joseph is because the two Joseph tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, were very prominent in the northern kingdom. But Ezekiel sees these two sticks reunited into one, and he's seeing a new kingdom created out of them under one king. And again, he calls this king David. My servant David will be king over them, he says. And later on, he says, my servant shall be their prince forever. And so this servant David that he refers to a couple times in Ezekiel 37 is once again the Messiah. And he emphasizes especially that this will be an everlasting kingdom because in the space of four verses, verses 25 through 28, he uses the word forever five times, that this will be an eternal kingdom under the Messiah. And he's reiterating his prophets' words from of old, and reminding them that he's fulfilling this, that Jesus is the greater David, and even in some ways, the greater than Solomon, because he will be great and called the son of the most high, just as Solomon, the great king, was son of David. So he's going to be son of the most high and given the throne of his father, David. So he's going to be both the son of God and the son of David. Here we have the incarnation spoken of in words uh, that are echoed in Luke chapter one. So we have Jesus portrayed as the king who rules over this reunited kingdom. And then finally, in the, the last chapters again of Ezekiel, where he has this great vision of a new temple, he also has a great vision of a new city of Jerusalem. And he even gives this new city a name. He calls it the Lord is there. Here is God's presence with his people in Jesus in the new holy city. And the city has interesting measurements. It's a cube. It's the same length and width and height. And so is the holy of holies in the new temple. It's this perfect presence of God. But God's not confined to this small space anymore. He fills the whole city. And the Messiah is the presence of God throughout this vision of the new Jerusalem. Of course, a theme that's taken up again in Revelation in the New Testament. But God is with us is, of course, something that Jeremiah is picking up from an earlier prophecy, well-known prophecy in Isaiah, where the Messiah is given the name Emmanuel, which many people know means God with us. So once again, this presence of God in the new temple is part of this way that Ezekiel concludes his prophecy, looking forward to the eternal kingdom of the Messiah. 
In addition to that, do we see the presence of the Messiah himself in Ezekiel? We do in his appearances to God. Of course, I mentioned earlier these appearances of the glory of God, Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel's actually taken into the presence of God to see him there. And he sees the glory of God doing various things throughout his book. And this is kind of the presence of God flowing from one end of the book of Ezekiel to the other. Every time he mentions this glory of God that Ezekiel himself personally sees. So he's present with the prophet. Turning to the book of Daniel, there's a series of visions in the latter part. There's all kinds of narrative in the beginning part. How do we sort out the vision of Daniel 2 to discern the message of the Messiah? Yeah, well, Daniel 2 is, of course, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel then explains to the king when no one else can explain it to him. And he explains it as uh, the king seeing a statue made up of four different metals, and this will be four different kingdoms. And then he says a stone will come out of the heavens and will smash this statue and grind it to pieces. And he says this stone was quarried without human hands. This is, of course, the divine origin of the Messiah who comes to smash these kingdoms. And God is revealing to Nebuchadnezzar this future coming kingdom of God. The stone grew into a great mountain, of course, the growth of the Messiah's kingdom until eventually as We see in the vision, it fills the entire earth. The four kingdoms that would dominate start with Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. That's eventually overcome by the Persians and Cyrus the Great. Then we have Alexander's, the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire, which leads to Greek kingdoms. That's the third medal. And then finally, the Greek kingdoms of the ancient Near East, are overcome by the Roman Empire, which is around in Jesus' day, and that's when Jesus came. Now, the people in Jesus' day, I believe, understood this prophecy, because in Luke 3, we're told that John the Baptist is preaching, and the people were expecting the Messiah to come, and they questioned John as to whether he might be the Messiah. Is he the Christ? And at the end of the book of Luke, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, the disciples there said that they expected that Jesus would be the Messiah. And uh, going back to the beginning of the book in Luke chapter 2, we're told that Simeon expected to see the Messiah before he died. Well, why did they have this expectation? Well, I believe it's quite simple. They could count the four. They understood they were in the fourth kingdom and that the Messiah had to come sometime soon. They didn't know the exact time, but they knew it was coming. Jesus actually connects himself with a rock that will destroy those who don't believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, Jesus said, 
quoting the Psalms, but then he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is in Luke chapter 20, also Matthew chapter 21, and he's picking up this language from this vision of Daniel in chapter 2. This was understood very early in the church. Many early church fathers cite this prophecy that came in the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar as fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, So very early on, it was understood. This prophecy about this stone that destroyed these kingdoms and builds an eternal kingdom that stretches to the end of the earth is Jesus himself. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. We're concluding our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. On the other side, there are more visions in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9 and 10. We'll get to those next. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. We're concluding our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest, Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. Dr. Steinman, we talked about the vision in Daniel 2. Let's talk about the one in Daniel 7. 
Yeah, Daniel 7 parallels Daniel 2 in that Daniel now has a vision of four beasts, which represent the same four kingdoms we talked about earlier. And then Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father, presiding over a court where the beasts are judged and their dominions taken away from them. And then in the midst of this, he all of a sudden sees in these night visions, as he describes them, the clouds of heaven and someone coming on the clouds of heaven, and he is like a son of man, like a human being. And this person comes to the God the Father, and he's given the dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and language should serve him. And he's given an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And so here we have a description of the enthronement of the Son of Man. And of course, you'll remember from the New Testament, this is one of the ways Jesus describes himself. That's used in the Old Testament simply to mean a human being, but Jesus, of course, is using it with reference to a particular human being. He used it to talk about himself on a number of times in the New Testament, about 80, I think. And when Jesus is on trial, the full significance of this comes out because the high priest challenges Jesus. We read this in Matthew 26. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And Jesus says, yes, you have said so. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, the only place in the Old Testament where you have the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven is in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is now revealing to the high priest and telling him directly, not only that he's the Messiah, but he's the one that Daniel saw in his vision. And of course, later on, when this vision is explained by an angel to Daniel, he's told that that whole kingdom will be given to the saints of the Most High. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to do. We are to reign with Christ, according to Paul. He writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And so the vision of this Son of Man in chapter 7, coming before the Ancient of Days, is a vision of what Jesus will do as the eternal king, sharing his kingdom with his people, and something that Jesus himself pointed the high priest to when he was on trial. What about the vision in Daniel 9? Yeah, in Daniel 9, there is a a vision uh, about Jerusalem and of what the city is going to be like. And it's talked about the future of Jerusalem as 70 weeks, which I believe are symbolic for the rest of the future of Jerusalem leading up to the Messiah. It actually uses the term Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 to refer to this. And it says that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. But nevertheless, this Messiah will make a covenant with people, according to Daniel chapter 7. Gabriel reveals all this to Daniel in this uh, chapter 9. I'm sorry, I said 7 before, but it's 9. And it's interesting that this 
70 weeks has a goal. In verse 24, it says it's the goal is to end, finish, and atone for sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and prophets, no more Old Testament prophets, and to anoint a most holy one, that is the Messiah. Remember, Messiah means anointed one. And so this messianic vision of the future Jerusalem is going to culminate. And I believe it's it's symbolic. The 490 weeks, 70 or 490 weeks, 70 weeks of, you could say 490 days. You'll remember that seven is used symbolically even by Jesus in the New Testament. When he speaks to Peter, when Peter asks, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Uh, Just like we have 70 weeks here. Jesus, of course, doesn't mean count up to 490 times. You don't have to forgive anymore. Uh, He means that that's the great way of saying you should always forgive your number. It's the perfect way to forgive your brother whenever he needs forgiveness. So these 490 days here, these 70 weeks are the perfect symbolic time for God to complete what he has to do in Jerusalem through the Messiah. This becomes very important because we have this reference also to sabbatical years. You'll remember in the Old Testament, they had sabbatical years every seventh year. They were to let the land remain fallow. And so they let the land remain fallow for 49 years, the seventh sabbatical year. Then they are to proclaim jubilee, the proclaim liberty throughout the land. That's what Jesus comes to do here at the end of these 70 weeks is to proclaim liberty from sin, death, and the devil. And he brings in a permanent jubilee where just like people were released from slavery in the year of jubilee, so we are released from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And the crucifixion is not only here, but Jesus uh, connected his ministry with the destruction of Jerusalem because we have Daniel talking about desolations of Jerusalem, and Jesus talks about the desolation of Jerusalem just before his crucifixion when he's out on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and they're praising the temple. And he talks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel coming on the city of Jerusalem and its temple. So lots of connections here in chapter 9. And this goes on, by the way, into Daniel's next vision, which is the final section of Daniel, chapters 10 through 12. And in those chapters, someone comes to reveal to Daniel more about this period between Daniel's day and the coming of the Messiah. And he does it in great detail. But what's most important here is that this revealer, is Jesus himself. It's very parallel to Ezekiel chapter one that we talked about earlier. So uh, he's like a son of man 
and he is clothed in linen garments, which we'll see in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. He has a gold belt around his waist, just like Ezekiel sees in his vision. He has a face like lightning, which is mentioned again in Ezekiel's inaugural vision in chapter one. His eyes are like torches. Torches are mentioned in the presence of God in Ezekiel chapter one. His arms and feet are like polished bronze. God's presence is like glowing metal in Ezekiel chapter one. He has a voice like an army and he's seated above many waters, many waters mentioned again in Ezekiel chapter one. So the same person that Ezekiel saw in chapter one is now coming to Daniel and revealing more mysteries about what is going to happen in the coming years after Daniel's day, but leading up to the coming of the Messiah. It's the Messiah himself who comes to Daniel and reveals this. So Daniel has the Messiah in his vision. And this, of course, is a very important passage because it shows us God's control of history, that Jesus comes at just the right time in history. And Jesus himself reveals the things that have to happen to lead up to that time in history in Daniel 10 through 12. Finally, with about a minute, how does God use even the judgment of his own people there in the Old Testament all throughout their history through the ministries of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel to show us the fulfillment of the Messianic promise in Jesus Christ? Well, he uses this judgment on his people to move them towards repentance and to show them the benefits that God gives his repentant people. He shows them the Messiah. He tries to lift their eyes from their ordinary everyday things and the things that they might think that God would benefit them with. Great prosperity, long life. Those are indeed blessings of God, but he tries to show them the ultimate blessing of God in the Messiah, because every other blessing of God pales to the blessings we have in Jesus, our Savior. And so they use this preaching of judgment, but also they use this benefit of repentance that God showers on his people as he calls them and moves them to repentance through his Holy Spirit. Dr. Andrew Steinman is Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. He's co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Messianic Message. Dr. Steinman, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Up next, we will replay a teaching from Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever on St. Michael and All Angels. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay with us. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. 
our mailing address, issues, etc. P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Join us September 29th at 7 p.m. for a hymn festival celebrating the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. Hymn commentary will be provided by Pastor Will Whedon, host of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever podcast, along with organist Chris Lemker, orchestra, and choir. For more information or to register to sing in the choir, visit our website, withangelsandarchangels.org. The Grace of God, the Church's Music, the Lord's Supper every service every Sunday, preaching Christ crucified and risen, our hope for years to come, there is hope in St. Louis, Hope Lutheran Church, that is, 5218 Neosho Street, St. Louis, Missouri. Find us on the web at hopelutheranstl.org.